Welcome to Line of Sight. My name is Don Heider. I'm the Executive Director of the Markelis Center for Applied Ethics at Santa Clara University. And I'm Bridget Helms, Executive Director at Miller Center for Social Entrepreneurship, also at Santa Clara University. And it is my immense pleasure to introduce to you today, Malika Anand. Malika is Head of Impact ESG and Research for Catalyst Fund, an early stage venture fund and accelerator that supports solutions for climate resilience in Africa. In addition to impact reporting and policy, she also heads research and insights work for the fund's associated ecosystem projects. In that uh, capacity, she leads an effort to extract and author insights from venture building to support the growth of the inclusive fintech sector. Prior to her work with Catalyst Fund, she has worked in financial inclusion, corporate social responsibility, and user experience at CGAP, which is a place that I worked for a long time as well, the Coca-Cola Company, and several impact ventures. She holds an MPAID, a master's from the Harvard Kennedy School, where she was a public service scholar and a BA from the University of Chicago. It was a Fulbright Fellow in the Dominican Republic. Wow. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's so lovely to see you guys again. Excellent. Okay, so um, tell us a little bit about Catalyst Fund and the transition that you've recently made to becoming a venture capital fund. Yeah, great. Thank you again so much for having me. I'm always thrilled to talk about Catalyst Fund. So happy to share again here. I think you guys might know Catalyst Fund from our, I think almost now seven years of history as an inclusive fintech accelerator. So we started off, uh, you know, as an early grant from the Gates Foundation with the goal of supporting inclusive fintech innovation in emerging markets. And we would accept startups in cohorts of anywhere sort of between four and seven startups. And the idea was that we would spend usually in the realm of six to eight months, really venture building. Um, and I'm going to come back to that term in a second. But to date, we have over 60 portfolio companies across, across the world in, in emerging markets across Africa and in India and in Mexico, uh, a couple in Brazil. And we're really proud, I think, of, of the kinds of fintech innovation that we've been able to support. So in our portfolio, you're not going to find just sort of vanilla credit and payment offerings but we supported Wasoko now almost five years ago. Um, so, we, you know, we really pride ourselves on being the pointy end of the spear and getting to innovation um, for all kinds of segments as part of the you know, inclusive fintech accelerator. And unlike most accelerators, our program really focuses on venture building. And what we use that word in particular because we go beyond sort of coaching and mentoring sessions or in classroom learning and actually have a team of former operators and founders and, and sort of key members of leading startups that really get hands-on with, with these startups. So I often say like, oh, you need, a, you need a CTO? Well, Kevin, who's a full stack developer and a really accomplished tech wizard, he can be your interim CTO for the next six months. Or you need help with marketing? Well, Akansha, who's our sort of marketing hacker, will jump onto your team help you make good decisions and train them up for what needs to come next. So we really spend um, you know, a lot of time diagnosing startup needs, figuring out what is going to help them to get 
to really impactful, beneficial products that meet the needs of low-income and vulnerable people in these communities. Last year, we made, I would say, two really important transitions. Until last year, the program was completely philanthropic. So people received, the startups received both cash and our support, you know, for free, thanks to the generous uh, funding arrangements from a variety of donors. So we switched from being a philanthropic program to actually being a venture capital fund. So now in exchange for cash and venture building support, we actually take a little piece of equity. I think it continues to be like one of the best deals around, but, but now we're a fund and we're really proud to be able to stick with our startups for longer, continue to serve them via participating in governance and on the cap table. So that's a really exciting transition. And the second transition we've made is actually to narrow our focus from not inclusive fintech more broadly, but actually the intersection of fintech and climate resilience. And the thesis there is that we believe not only that financial services themselves can help low-income and vulnerable families and businesses build their resilience through products like insurance or emergency payments, but also that fintech innovation and financial services can be an enabler and a foundation for a range of other goods and services that are fundamental to resilience. Right. So we know this case very well with Paygo, right, that fintech innovation in the form of digital payments and automatic deductions and remote sensors allow for families who didn't have access to to renewable energy or even any kind of electrification can now purchase sort of solar home systems or water filtration systems. So taking that kind of view on the power of fintech innovation to get people the kinds of solutions they need. So uh, talk a little bit about your role as head of impact and what that transition has looked like from your perspective? That's a great question. It's something that I have to say I'm still learning as we go. <laughs> you know, um, as, a, as first time fund managers, I think there's a, it's a really steep learning curve, but really exciting. I think in honesty, a lot of the impact work remains largely the same. We continue to be impact first. We spend a lot of time thinking about the actual sort of climate change impact and resilience challenges that users face to develop a lot of conviction that the services and solutions we're supporting are really going to meet those needs, right? So if somebody comes to us with a health solution, we actually spend a lot of time saying, okay, in your market, what are the kinds of health challenges that people face? Are those health challenges being exacerbated by climate change? How well does the solution match those needs? And we continue to use sort of our original guiding framework, what we call the AAA framework, which is affordable, accessible, and appropriate. Meaning, is this good in service? Are people going to be able to afford it? They're going to be able to actually reach a price point that makes sense for them. Is it going to be accessible? Meaning, is it going to get to the last mile or rural areas, to women, to folks who may not always be able to sort of access things in traditional marketplaces? And three, is it going to be appropriate? Right. Is this actually going to meet a relevant need? Is it going to meet that relevant need in a way that people can understand, you know, a, a really text heavy kind of uh, app that re requires a lot of data and a big download? That's not going to meet any of our criteria around affordability, accessibility and appropriateness. So I think that part of understanding impact, understanding impact reporting, making sure we're meeting needs continues to be um, the core of the fund. Where I think I've, we've are, had to do more work is really understanding climate resilience as a core challenge. You know, climate change is, is not a standalone program. It's not a standalone pro problem. It really exacerbates the existing challenges and vulnerabilities that low-income and marginalized people already face. So we know, for example, that low-income people 
face more emergencies and they face those emergencies with less ability to either respond or manage them. So we all have health issues, but if you're really far from a hospital and the hospital that you're able to access uh, is not of great quality and you don't have savings or insurance, then all of those things sort of come together in a really devastating constellation. Now, when you add to that uh, climate change impacts, you're talking about exacerbating an already very complex set of vulnerabilities, but doing it in a way that still is not that clear. So we know climate change impacts are taking place, but we don't have a full picture about of how they're going to unfold and in what way, even as sort of educated folks studying this for a living. And that creates a sort of many complex knock-on effects including, for example, that users themselves or customers themselves don't have a good way to know whether they're really going to need a product. You know, I, we, th we talk about insurance a lot in this business and people have a hard time contemplating those downside events on any day, but contemplating downside events that you have no exposure to, you don't really, you can't really anticipate the fact that floods are going to get worse or that droughts are going to get worse or that pests you've never heard of um, are suddenly going to be an issue for you. So that low awareness around users, I think, is a big challenge. And then also accompanied by low awareness with investors who aren't really sure how to price then that demand and that opportunity. So this whole picture around climate change shocks and stressors is kind of messy and unclear. So for us as a fund trying to say, OK, where are the opportunities? What's really going to be um, scalable and venture backed and become and be a real you know business that it makes sense for for a venture capital fund is where we've had to do a lot more work and where I've had to do a lot more work saying okay where now does the impact and the business uh, case really overlap and where can we be sure that this is really gonna take off and make sense that is so interesting because you know so climate resilience is one of the themes that we look at at Miller Center as well and um, very much aware of that kind of, you know, the intersection between a climate crisis and human beings and recognizing that, uh, you know, poor, low income, marginalized, excluded people are so much more vulnerable to that crisis that they did very little to create, honestly. And so what we've done is we focused very uh, specifically in three kind of subsectors where we think that entrepreneurship can move the needle. One is uh, regenerative agriculture. The second is renewable energy. And the third is um, clean water and sanitation. Um, the, the difference is that, you know, we're not also including the FinTech into that, which would. Um, <laughs> so I think what's interesting about what you're talking about is that those sectors that I just talked about don't tend to lend themselves to venture capital in the traditional sense, because they're not necessarily potential unicorns with the kind of J-curve growth uh, trajectory. We call, you know, we talk about them as zebras instead of unicorns, and zebras unite. You might be aware of that group that, that are really passionate about this idea that there's a lot of really high impact, high growth companies, but they're, you know, they're never gonna really fit the mold. So I'm wondering how do you address that because you know that's something that we run into all the time it's kind of like the traditional venture product isn't really fit for a lot of those types of businesses i think you're completely right that that venture capital is not not the only tool and is rarely the right tool um so we are looking for a very specific set of kind of solutions to give you a sense i think our sourcing team to get to this cohort of 10 
reviewed over a thousand startup models, right? Because we are really looking for that very specific kind of um, model where it makes sense to, to really scale at that magnitude and at that velocity. And that's where I think fintech and tech more broadly becomes a critical part. Right, I think when you do have tech as a part of the solution, then it gives you the opportunity for those pathways to scale and that replicability and that ability to really to really get to those kinds of returns that you're looking to as a fund. You know, part of being accelerator as well is that we're helping, we're we're standing alongside the founders and the startups and helping them find those opportunities to say, okay, what about this model lends itself for a venture back model, and what of this is actually, you know better left to a government program or to an NGO or some other kind of civil society organization. And frankly, I think as a community, we have a long ways to go in sort of squaring our own thinking on what really belongs in the private sector and in the hands of private sector innovators and where other players need to also come to the table. Uh, In my impact work, for example, there's a lot of questions about sort of impact data. What are startups collecting about, about their users? And some of the proposals that are the suggestions that come my way, they look like census, household surveys, you know, at, and I have to sometimes say, well, you know, a, a 50 page household survey that is better implemented by a government census bureau and not by a startup, right? Like that we have a little bit of, of rationalizing to do about who does what uh, and your point around what the returns are, I think, is absolutely right. We just launched a new area for our ethics center in venture and private equity ethics. So um, in terms of your transition to venture, do you have a set of sort of core values that guide you and and uh, any kind of code of ethics? So we, of course, we do. Like all, you know, good good responsible players, we adhere to the UN Global Compact. We have our own our internal teams, code of conduct. We have sort of these broader statements about do no harm. I think all of those tools and frameworks are really useful, but our sort of history and culture coming from the accelerator and financial inclusion space is I think actually what keeps our DNA so tightly tied to the kinds of principles you're talking about. In particular, this emphasis on product and problem solution fit being ruthless, I think, around really diagnosing what challenges people are facing and making sure that the solutions we're supporting meet the sort of AAA criteria is where actually the rubber hits the road. I think signing, you know, signing on to these higher level codes is a really important step, but it wouldn't go far enough, I think, for my our, our level of comfort. You know, in, in our case, I'm a, you know, I sit on our investment committee as head of impact. I'm a senior level member of the team. When I look at a lot of our funds in this space, the person who helps with impact work is like an entry level um, sort of associate who also is responsible for community management and newsletters and all these sorts of things. And to me, that's a strong signal that we're not embedding the kind of view that you're talking about into the DNA and the leadership and the culture of these organizations, which is, I mean, maybe a, a hard truth, I think, to, to talk about, but I see you nodding. <laughs> um, and those of us, and I know Bridget, and I, we know, we've known each other a long time. I think those of us that have been in this space for a long time, particularly in the financial inclusion and ag spaces, it takes a lot of knowing 
to know that something isn't going to be terrible. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of, there tends to be a lot of hidden costs and there can be really disadvantageous contracts and it's easy to take advantage of, of folks who don't, don't read very well or don't read very much or sign where they're supposed to sign. And so getting really wrapped up into terms and conditions and disclosures around, around a population that is not that literate, once you articulate it like that, it becomes clear that this is a problem. But you kind of have to know that. You kind of have to have spent time in the field, spent time around a lot of products to know that this is going to be a problem. Uh, and sometimes I wish that we had more senior, more experienced resource asking these kinds of questions. Completely agree. And even in our ecosystem, you know, when really pressed, a lot of the investors that we work with will say, okay, so impact is like a first screen. So we'll say, okay, is this an impact or not? Does it have impact or not? And then after that, it's all the financials. It's it, like, basically they check that box and then pretty much never ask another impact question again. I mean, uh, and they're self-described impact investors. So I, I you know, I, I totally agree with you. Having somebody kind of really paying attention to that dimension almost on an equal basis is fairly rare. Um, in even in the impact investing space. So I was just having this conversation actually with some other investors who say, oh, well, just because I invest in Africa doesn't mean I'm an impact investor. And what they were reflecting is this exactly this notion that the bar for being an impact investor is actually oftentimes incredibly low. Uh, that you can just say, oh, I invest in ag and, and that sometimes is enough to say that you're an impact investor and there's not a lot of depth to, to really having that conviction that the product is responsible and will deliver benefits, et cetera. Yeah, and fintech has, um, I'm just going to, you know, just keep going down this road of ethics. As you know, um, fintech uh, across Africa and with, you know, uh, especially in the last whatever 15 or 20 years when, you know, mobile money came out and PESA and everything and all the uh, lending platforms that came out that you find out they're charging triple digit uh, interest rates. And there's a lot of, uh, a lot of controversy around fintech in in East Africa, at least for a while. There, people were talking about it a lot. Um, you know, how do you how do you deal with those kinds of issues? That's a really good question. I mean, I think in a lot of ways we're fortunate in that we get to cherry pick, right? Like we're not setting policy or administering a, a huge program through a bunch of organizations. We get to cherry pick the ones, the models and the founders that give us the greatest security, that give us the most comfort. In practice, what that means is a lot of idiosyncratic deep diving, right? So I don't have to, at the fund, we don't have a blanket policy on, for example, early wage access. We don't say like early wage access is great. We say like some early wage access models are great, and we really look carefully at their pricing, at how users are using them. We ask questions about how they're collecting feedback. We ask questions about retention. Uh, we ask questions about how they compare to other products on the market to give ourselves the comfort that that particular product meets these kinds of criteria. criteria. And, and we've, I've been lucky to, to lead some of this research. Now there's really good research that suggests unlocking a little bit of your wages ahead of time, a few days before the payout, allows you to keep working at the end of that pay cycle, 
right? So we have a, a portfolio company called Karma Life that found that in a four, after, during a 14-day pay cycle, the last two or three days, workers weren't really working that much and they couldn't understand why. When we dived into it, we found that they were struggling to pay for fuel and airtime during those last few days. And if you're a gig worker or you depend somehow, somehow on your vehicle or your phone for work, which a lot of low-income workers do, then you're waiting to get that cash to be able to sort of get those working inputs into motion. So unlocking a little bit of your paycheck at an affordable rate, and in this case, provided not as cash, but directly as airtime vouchers or as fuel vouchers, allows you to earn much more during that period, more than covering any cost of credit. So, but the answer to your question is not an easy one, which is that you just have to dig a lot and dig until you have that level of comfort. Uh, and I would say that I think there's, there's been some unfair demonizing around credit and some insufficient scrutiny around savings or insufficient scrutiny around insurance because of these kind of simplified narratives on what kind of products are good and what kind of products are bad. Instead of saying, well, in this context, with this challenge, what we know about users and the choices they face, this really makes sense. What do you see as, uh, you, you've talked about a little bit, you've, you've sort of uh, touched on a little bit, but maybe you could go a little bit greater debt. And what do you see are the greatest barriers, the key barriers to having the greatest impact? I, I mean, I'm going to give you an answer that's probably, maybe you suspect and is maybe boring, but I still think is abundantly true, which is the access to, to funding. You know, I think there's a lot of amazing innovations and ideas and solutions that die on the vine because they, and not even on the vine, that die like in the soil before they can sprout because there's just not um, ways to get to market. And part of this, I think, gets to the question that Bridget was asking is like, well, what if you're not a venture capital style model? And that's a real question because there's sometimes even when venture capital is really limited as it is in Africa, for example, there, it might still be the only option. Uh, getting access to bank loans or small business loans is very, very difficult, I think, especially for young innovators. There aren't angel investor networks. If you are from certain communities, getting access to friends and family kind of capital that might help you start a business can be nearly impossible. So I would say, you know, across the entire spectrum of stage of business, there's enormous shortfalls of capital, whether you're at the idea stage, at the prototyping stage, at the kind of product market fit stage, at the scaling stage, in emerging markets, trying to launch a business. If you don't come from a business family or you don't have already a business that you inherited that you then pivot or try and scale is nearly impossible. Even as we can feel really good about how venture capital funds are going increasingly to emerging markets, Africa still receives less than 1% of global venture capital. And with the global condition, economic conditions as they are, that 1% in real terms, it has shrunk even just in the past two quarters. And what that, the implications for founders and innovators are real. You know, every day I think there's articles about how a really promising model has had to exit countries, has had to scale back, has had to lay off. And it's not because, I mean, part of it I think is probably there's some rationalization of stronger mo models versus weaker models. But a lot of it is just that it's hard to start a business. And it's harder even to start a business in these markets where distribution and logistics is a challenge, where there's a lot of uncertainty, where talent is scarce, where 
you know, the banking system can be irregular or, you know, unreliable. And all of that complexity means higher operating costs, longer journey to product market fit. And frankly, there isn't, there isn't nearly enough impact and patient risk tolerant capital to get us the range of, of solutions that are needed. Yeah, I would, I would fully agree with that. And in fact, that's, you know, a lot of what, obviously what we do here at Miller Center is we work on that problem for what we call the valley of death. <laughs> you know, once you get past a certain point, because um, as you say, you know, um, I think there are gaps all the way along the life cycle, but and there are more resources for the very early stage companies um, on the ground in a lot of these countries. But let's say you go through an incubator and then you get like a twenty-five or $50,000 challenge grant, then boom, nothing, nothing comes next, you know? Um, and so it's a real issue. It's a real issue that what we're trying to advocate for is how to build a more entrepreneur-centric ecosystem where we're forging the right kind of partnerships that enable the entrepreneurs to get access to the right inputs and flavor of capital at the right point in time in their growth trajectory. Um, we're pretty far from that right now, <laughs> I think, uh, overall. And there are a lot of, I would argue, a lot of ethical questions about that too, right? Because you have a lot of these public sector projects kind of creating space and creating uh, startups, but then there's nowhere for them to go. So it's kind of like, you know, you're kind of raising these expectations and hopes and and dreams of people, and then, but you know, dropping, dropping them. Um, I'm I'm interested. Can we talk a little bit about ESG? I mean, you haven't spoken directly about that. Um, so, how do you think about ESG frameworks, um, and how do you incorporate that the metrics around ESG? environmental, social, and governance considerations into the Catalyst Fund's work? I think this is another area where we're still learning. Um, and I think there hasn't been a, a yet a lot of experience on how to adapt ESG thinking and frameworks, one, either to emerging markets or two, to early stage business. Uh, I think you know a lot of the frameworks and reporting standards were developed for your kind of Fortune 500, really established, developed world businesses. They focus a lot on reporting, sort of the list of things that you are you are able to disclose, and it requires a lot of sort of operational know-how and management to get to those long list of metrics. So one of the important questions we're asking ourselves, and that we hope our experience will help contribute some wisdom to is sort of how do you think about these kinds of concerns when you're talking about early stage business? So if I have two full-time staff members and a hundred users, do I need a board? Or is there another kind of responsible governance mechanism that I could be, that is more suitable to my stage? Or, you know, another example that comes up is tracking emissions. You know, this is core to ESG reporting but it's costly. It takes a really good handle on what your operations look like to get to a meaningful estimate. And if at the time you're still leveraging other people's trucks, for example, you don't have your own fleet, your operations vary month to month, 
spending a lot of resource on emissions tracking, especially when you have no funding, as we were just talking about, or a runway of four months, six months, it's not a good use of resource. But creating startups that have environmental concerns and care at their core still is. So one of the things I really want to have a conversation about as a community is, you know, what is the journey from founder to sort of early stage, growth stage, scale, et cetera, for ESG? How do we make sure that ESG is both feasible and relevant and motivating in the ways that we want at each of those stages? Because otherwise it just becomes, I think, uh, you know, it falls into this greenwashing kind of set of activities where you're saying, okay, what boxes can I take without investing too much? Because actually this isn't a priority. And my feeling with the founders that I know is that it is a priority. They care a lot about social benefits, about environmental concerns, and about good governance. But having a gender balanced board when there's two of them coding in a basement, just there isn't a connect there. I don't think we've really even started that conversation in a real way. That's interesting. Do you, do you hear much about that, Don, in the work that you're doing and the ethics stuff with startups and venture funds? Absolutely. I think with startups, it's a lot that, um, you know, every decision a founder is making could be the end of their company. <laughs> and so oftentimes their hair is on fire and they're going from crisis to crisis. And so to ask them to stop and think deeply about ESG or ethics is um, seems like a stretch. Now, in truth, it's it's what may help them steer the path better and and help them avoid more crises. But I don't think they often see that. We we've had a hard time getting into some of the major U.S. accelerators because um, they're sometimes based at institutions that don't put ethics and ESG as a core value. So, um, yeah. You know, one of the, when, when I saw that, you know, you wanted to talk about ESG, I actually, I thought you were going to go in a completely different direction. So this is really like, what did you think I was going to say? <laughs> I was just projecting because it's something that I'm thinking about. So um, increasingly the trend that we're seeing is that a number of the bigger corporations that have made commitments around ESG, but don't, and have global footprints and don't exactly know what to do are looking to social entrepreneurship and social enterprises of all kinds, impact enterprises, if you will, around the world as a kind of solution to either to incorporate them into what is being called social and inclusive supply chain uh, activity or procurement activity or through supporting in other ways through their CSR, but somehow looking at these kind of scalable, high impact social enterprises as a way to connect to their own ESG agenda. And I just was curious to see whether you see some of that happening with the portfolio companies that you're working with. Yeah, absolutely. I think that this notion of partnering with incumbents and established corporates is a, you know, a long held sort of pathway to scale for startups and the extent to which ESG mandates have opened that door a little bit further 
I think it's true. It, I don't have that many examples in the portfolio, but I can think of one, a, a company that I love called Farm to Feed. They work with farmers in Kenya, basically purchasing imperfect and uh, you know damaged produce. And then they help them find a market for that produce. And some of that, the off-taking for that produce is companies as part of their CSR mandates, right? If you can say that X percent of the tomatoes that went into this tomato sauce have been rescued from the landfill, then that I think does contribute to some of the CSR mandate that we're talking about. I'm using the word CSR and not ESG because I do think it still takes the form of these very opportunistic partnerships between a local corporate and a startup. And it doesn't has not yet that kind of activity, I think, reached the level of sort of ESG reporting and policy. Uh, but it's certainly pressure from one direction and pressure from the other direction that makes these things these things possible. And I think we continue to be hopeful that partnerships can serve as a way for startups to get to that volume and bridge the valley of death as you're talking about. So we talk a lot about with our founders about not using the word of ethics, but we talk a lot about user needs and user centricity and use that as a lens to give a vocabulary to that discipline of ethical treatment and responsible treatment um, and engagement with, with customers. But at our stage, a lot of that happens through the language of product development and retention and repeat use and feedback and net promoter scores and in the context of product market fit. But as an impact professional, I see, I see it as core to the issues of ethics that you're raising. That if you're listening to your users, giving them clear ways to provide you feedback, keeping track of how they're using your product, making sure it's not doing harm, but in fact providing benefit, I think is a, is a way of doing business that really resonates with our founders. But I, want, I suspect if I use the word ethics, they might not know what I mean. Yeah, I mean, we have a whole ethical decision-making process we teach, and you know, it tries to ask a series of questions that, and none of them are, is this ethical? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, um, it, it sounds like you built in a series of questions that that operationalize ethics, and that's exactly what we do as Applied Ethics Center is we're not so interested in thinking deep thoughts about ethics. Um, not that we never think deep thoughts, <laughs> but about taking uh, ethics and helping people apply it to their everyday lives or their business or a gut, you know, a, helping a government entity, a nonprofit. And, and I'll, I'll just say that, you know, as, as close as I've come to what you all do is, you know, trying to help some nonprofits and, Nonprofits often aren't doing what you're doing, which is they're not often in touch with the end user. The staff is, but oftentimes the board isn't. And, and we try to offer, for instance, board training to help board members um, get better at, at those kinds of practices because there's often a, a disconnect between the folks that are allegedly being helped <laughs> And the folks making the decision and giving the money towards that help. And if you can't bridge that gap, then you have a real serious problem. And there's an assumption often within nonprofits that, hey, we're all here doing good work. And the board, we're all here volunteering our time and giving money. Of course, it's ethical. 
of course we're doing the right thing. And so there's very little examination of are we really doing the right thing and is it really having the impact? And, and in fact, we teach ethical storytelling to nonprofits because oftentimes the storytelling might be very unethical and exploitive. Uh, and so, you know, there are all sorts of issues, uh, domestically at least, in our experience with nonprofits and whether or not they're really doing what they say they're doing and, and how serious they are about thinking about ethics. I mean, I've had people in nonprofits and in the foundation world tell me that they've never encountered an ethical dilemma in their work. And that's that's really troubling to me <laughs> because, of course, they have. They just haven't recognized it or, or they don't know how to deal with it. So yeah, that is really interesting. Um, it makes me it kind of reminds me also like what you were talking about. I don't know if you remember back in the in the day and uh, in the microfinance, early microfinance days, we had all these debates about impact uh, monitoring and evaluation of impact. And you had these kind of two concepts. One is to prove your impact and the other is to improve your impact. So what, you know, I think that what we tend to work on and I think what you're talking about too is what are the things that the founders need to track and, and, and pay attention to in order to continuously improve the impact, not necessarily to prove to the rest of the world the impact they're having to the bean counting and whatnot that, and trying to get the investors on that same page as well. Because oftentimes what you see, and I'm sure you've seen this a million times, is that each one of the different investors that you have is asking for some something else, some, something different from each other. And similar, but not exactly the same. And this format and that format and this indicator and that indicator. And then you start to spin a lot of wheels, you know, trying to just comply. And it's ridiculous. So, uh, and it's not necessarily core to making the business better or, or growing the business. So I think that's another dimension. It's almost like a, I think it's a dimension of ethics that relates to the relationship between the investor and the, and the entrepreneur, right? Yeah, definitely. And I think it's, it does come back, I think, to a little bit of knowing well the sector and the evidence and having conviction on where you can play, right? So I'll give you two examples. You know, there's a lot, there's a lot of really strong evidence that health insurance leads to better outcomes, right? That people seek care sooner, they're able to afford that care, that they make better decisions about preventative care, et cetera, et cetera. There's really no, no evidence around hospice cash insurance, right? Uh, which is a kind of emerging market innovation around insurance where it's not that you get reimbursed for everything, but if you can show an invoice that you were at a hospital, maybe the first 500 rupees are covered. And the first 500 rupees are covered for as many days as you're in the hospital. And it's a lower cost way of delivering insurance that makes sense a lot of, in a lot of these markets. Now, there's no evidence, there's not, you know, RCTs around hospital cash, but it's, it's adjacent enough to insurance that we can feel, we can have some confidence that this is a model worth investing in. And then that, when that model then becomes scaled, then you can invite researchers to come and do the RCT, right? But there's a chicken and egg problem if you're waiting for the RCT evidence to be in 
to have confidence around the impact and there's no scale providers of that service. And I often find our founders in this chicken and egg situation where they're really innovating something new. There is not a lot of evidence that proves the impact of this particular product or service, but it's adjacent enough that we can have comfort. And the second you know, example I would give you to, your, to the point you're making is we have you know, people who are diligencing the fund, for example, that will say, oh, what's the pre-post on agricultural yields for this portfolio company? And to say, well, the startup isn't going out there and doing a pre-measurement. Who, who's going to go do the pre-measurement about what agricultural yields look like before they came in with improved seeds and irrigation or whatever it might be? So it seems like a simple question and a pre-post of agricultural yield seems like a, a no-brainer for evaluating the impact of a model, but in practice, it's actually nearly impossible to deliver. And so you become, you start to say, okay, what can I do to embed in, in the product development process, in the PMF process that will get me to a scale product that I have a lot of confidence about that doesn't depend so heavily on this third party evidence, which isn't always feasible, either because it doesn't exist or because nobody's there to collect it or because it's too onerous to collect, et cetera. RCT stands for randomized control trials and uh, they are extremely expensive. And some people would argue not super ethical. <laughs> Correct. Especially when you're talking about interventions that are, um, you know, it provide, for instance, healthcare or life, any kind of life-saving services or uh, improving people's livelihoods and things like that, because you have to, on purpose, deny services to the control group. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's a, it's very problematic, but many people would say that's the only way to really know, to prove, you know, that something actually has an impact. There's huge organizations in our sector that, whose whole mission is to direct funding to only interventions where impact has been proven. The interventions that are proven are not, not a random selection of interventions. They're, they're interventions that have been picked by certain parties and have been around long enough to have been tested over and over and over again. Um, and what that means is you really disadvantage innovation. And in a world of climate change, where we're talking about new threats, more frequent threats, and in a world where technology is one of our most powerful enablers, what you're doing is effectively saying, don't, don't consider this range of very promising solutions. Only consider this other bucket that has been around you know, for at least a couple of decades to have at least 15, 20 RCTs behind it. <laughs> it's a racket. <laughs> no, they do great work, but you know, there is a, there are these kind of hidden um, hierarchies, uh, one of my colleagues would say. This has been Line of Sight with Malika Anand. This, I'm Bridget Helms, Executive Director at Miller Center for Social Entrepreneurship. I'm Don Heider, Executive Director for the Markless Center for Applied Ethics. Malika, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you both so much. It's such an honor and a pleasure to connect with you both.